Though you may feel you are in a safe location, you never know when you will be faced with a survival situation. There are no formal boundaries between the wilderness and humanity. Nature has a way of encroaching into areas which may surprise us. Matawan, New Jersey, Wednesday, July 12, 1916. In 1916, Matawan was a small town located 11 miles from the broad ocean, about a mile from Raritan Bay with a population of around 2,000 residents. Staten Island borders the northwestern portion of the bay, while the southern part borders the northern Raritan Bay shore. The average depth is 11 to 30 feet, with a maximum depth of 45 feet. To reach Matawan by water, you need to travel from the mouth of Matawan Creek at Raritan Bay, a mile inland where the small village would greet you. The day was oppressively hot, and the least amount of movement left you breaking out in a sweat. A retired sailor, Captain Thomas Cottrell, was crossing the town's trolley drawbridge and happened to look down into the water. What he saw immediately alarmed him. A shark quietly swam beneath the bridge, heading upstream. Captain Cottrell recalled a recent shark attack six days ago, and another 12 days prior. Those attacks were at the ocean, however, and this was Matawan along a brackish creek a mile from the bay and far from the open waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Cottrell knew sharks didn't live in brackish waters, but nonetheless, the captain was sure of what he saw and promptly alerted everyone he could about his shark sighting. His report was not well received. Everyone thought it was ridiculous that a shark would be so far from the ocean. The ocean was 10 miles away. Matawan Creek was only 17 feet deep at its greatest depth and no more than 35 feet wide. The old captain must have seen a log floating in on the tide. The captain's warning was dismissed, and the high temperatures drove people to the creek for relief. One of those individuals was 11-year-old Lester Stillwell. Lester worked as an apprentice at the village's basket factory, and his kind supervisor had given him and his buddies the afternoon off to find relief with a swim. The boys did not hear Captain Cottrell's frightful warning, but even if they had, one wonders if they would have heeded it. The boys headed to the inactive streamship dock, stripped down and plunged into the cool, refreshing water. Historical and contemporary accounts vary with what happened next. Lester was a strong swimmer and plunged further into the creek, but the depth was only about three feet. Lester had epilepsy. History divulges that the boys thought he was having a fit. Contemporary accounts report one of the boys saw a shark attack Lester, initially thinking a log was drifting toward the boy. Regardless, Lester disappeared below the surface and resurfaced, screaming and flailing his arms wildly. It was evident Lester was in great distress, and the boys dashed off for help, oblivious to their nakedness. Nearby, many people heard the screams and responded quickly to the scene. 
The first to arrive was 24-year-old shopkeeper Stanley Fisher. When he first heard the commotion, he was with a local school teacher, Miss May Anderson, who reminded him of the shark sighting. Fisher dismissed the warning, hoping the boy could be saved. When he arrived at the shore, Fisher promptly stripped down and dove into the water, hoping to find Lester quickly and bring him to the surface. Others appeared at the site, murmuring about Captain Cottrell's ominous prior shark warning. Across the stream, Arthur Smith and Joseph DeLue launched a small motorboat to assist with the search. Fisher dove into the creek, swam to midstream, and began diving in search of Lester. After a few tries, he broke the surface and screamed success. Fisher headed toward the opposite shore since he was closer to that side of the bank. He was quickly able to stand, but as soon as he did so, bystanders heard him cry out and his arms flung into the air. Lester's body was let go and disappeared into the water. Fisher was then dragged beneath the water. Other boats had been launched and quickly convened at the spot where Fisher was last seen. Fisher somehow reappeared, dragged himself mostly to shore, and collapsed. He was swiftly surrounded by those willing to aid, but was senseless from shock and pain. A grisly sight met those who witnessed his wounds. The young man's right leg stripped of flesh from above the hip at the waistline to a point below the knee. It was as though the limb had been raked with heavy, dull knives. Arthur Van Buskirk used rope to fashion a tourniquet to restrict the blood flow. Dr. G.L. Reynolds treated the wound on the scene, and Fisher recovered enough to report a shark had attacked him, felt the initial bite, and looked down to see the shark firmly grasping him. While he was in no more than three or four feet of water, Fisher thought he was safe, in such shallow water. Fisher was transported across the stream to a waiting automobile, which took him to the rail station for a train to the hospital in Long Branch. He died in the hospital on the way to the operating room. Back at the attack site, boats were looking for Lester's body, and others had arrived with procured dynamite from Asher P. Woodley's store to drive the shark to the surface and kill it. Meanwhile, news of the attack had just arrived one half mile downstream to another group of boys enjoying swimming from a pier. They were at the site of the New Jersey Clay Company brickyards. When someone warned them to get out of the water, Joseph Dunn, a 12-year-old visiting the area from New York City, was the last to exit the water. As he pulled himself up upon the brick pier, the shark struck his leg, clamping down with its fierce teeth at the knee, tearing away much of the flesh. His companions quickly dragged Dunn onto the pier, pulling him from further harm. A motorboat driven by J.R. Lefferts saw what had happened, scooped young Dunn into his boat, and brought him to where help still awaited at the site of the first two attacks. In the Wild is sponsored by AG1, 
I gave AG1 a try because I know it's important to get your greens and vitamins throughout the day. I drink AG1 in the morning, and it makes me feel very energetic. It has 75 high-quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food-sourced ingredients. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment in your health, try AG1, and you'll get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash in the wild. That's drinkag1.com slash in the wild. Drinkag1.com slash in the wild. Check it out. And now for the conclusion of this episode of In the Wild. During the boys' long wait, Dunn's wound was treated and dressed, and he was transported to St. Peter's Hospital by motor car. In a span of 90 minutes, three people fell victim to the Matawan shark. Joseph Dunn was the only victim to survive Matawan's three shark attacks that day, though he would spend over a month in the hospital. Stillwell's body was not found until two days later, about 150 feet upstream against a train trestle. News of the shark attacks spread quickly throughout neighboring towns. Persons who claimed they saw the shark strike Fisher estimated the animal to be nine feet long. In hindsight, the local population should have known about the possible dangers, but since the attacks were a mile or more in Brackish Creek, it still makes the events of that day in Matawan unimaginable. The two attacks before the incidents in Matawan went as follows. On July 1st, 28-year-old Charles Epting Van Sant was swimming at Beach Haven, a resort town on Long Beach Island. A shark began biting his legs, and nearby swimmers initially believed he was shouting at a nearby dog. A lifeguard and bystander pulled Van Sant from the water and were horrified to find little flesh remaining on his left thigh. They carried him to the nearby Englewood Hotel, where he bled to death on the manager's desk before professional medical assistance arrived. Authorities advised the attack was a fluke. They claimed the shark was preying on the dog and Bruder was collateral damage. Beaches remained open, even with more reports of shark sightings from sea captains coming into local harbors. Six days later, on July 6th, a second shark attack occurred. 45 miles north of the Beach Haven attack lies Spring Lake, another beach resort town. Charles Bruder, 27, a hotel employee, was swimming 130 yards offshore. A shark viciously attacked him in the stomach and a second bite severed his legs. The water around him turned red with his blood. A bystander mistook the water color as an upturned red canoe and alerted lifeguards. They rode out and pulled Bruder from the water, but he died on the way back to shore. Again, authorities deemed the attack a fluke. Area beaches remained open. Then the attacks occurred at Matawan. After those attacks, experts revised their theories about sharks. Panic among the public exploded, and hundreds of sharks were hunted and killed in the following months. Scientists at the time believed sharks rarely attacked humans, if ever. 
Someone may be bitten, like a fisherman trying to untangle a shark from a net, but never attacked. But these attacks sent experts scrambling, revising their beliefs. They also sent panic and fear throughout the population and began a ghastly interest in the dangers of sharks. The immediate reaction, especially in Matawan, was to explode dynamite along the entire length of the creek to identify and kill the offender. Townspeople showed up with guns, axes, spears, and whatever else could be used as a weapon. Beach towns along the coast constructed steel fences and netting barriers to protect local bathers. Lifeguards and shark spotters scanned the seashores ever alert to the present danger. Fishermen and shark hunters killed hundreds of sharks. Many claimed to have gotten the man-eater. Even Captain Cottrell caught a 7-foot, 230-pound bull shark or sandbar shark at the mouth of Matawan Creek and sold tickets to allow people to view the brute. On July 14th, Michael Schleiser, a lion tamer for Barnum & Bailey, caught a great white shark in Raritan Bay, a few miles from the mouth of Matawan Creek. Scientists investigated and identified human remains of flesh and bone in the shark's stomach. There were no more shark attacks that summer. Shark species suspected then were bull, great white, blue, and sand sharks. Discussions even suspected a disturbed sea turtle was the culprit. But many believed Schleiser's great white shark was the culprit. There were also no shortage of theories about the onslaught of attacks. A rogue shark. Cyclones were driving the beasts from the south. German U-boats patrolling along the coast pushed sharks toward the shore. It was during World War I, after all. And even bombings during the Spanish-American War that drove the shark north. The shark attacks during the summer of 1916 along the New Jersey coast forever changed the perception of sharks and their dangerous nature. While shark attacks today are rare, they can still happen. According to the International Shark Attack File, the odds of being attacked by a shark are 1 in 11.5 million. By comparison, the odds of being struck by lightning are 1 in 700,000. Experts predict between 80 to 100 shark attacks worldwide every year. In 2020, there were 57 documented cases of shark attacks, resulting in 10 fatalities. While any shark can attack, the three most dangerous are the great white, bull, and tiger sharks. One can mitigate the risks by swimming in designated areas with lifeguards present. Do not swim in areas where sharks are known to be present. Always swim with a companion. Avoid swimming between dusk and dawn as sharks are most active during this time. Avoid wearing shiny jewelry and bright swimsuits as these can attract sharks. Do not swim by schools of fish or seals as they are prey for sharks. Swim in clear water, well away from waste disposal, which can attract sharks. If you see a shark, remain calm. Keep in sight while slowly moving away from the animal. Do not make any fast, jerking motions, which will further engage the shark. Exit the water slowly. If you are attacked, 
you need to defend yourself. Do not play dead. If you have any equipment like dive gear, surfboard, or fishing equipment, use that to avoid using your hands. If you must attack with your hands, aim for the eyes, nose, and gills. If being attacked, sudden movements are advised to scare the shark. After an attack upon yourself or another person, one, try to stop the bleeding by applying pressure or a tourniquet, even as you leave the water or assist with getting the victim from the water. Two, get medical help immediately, no matter how minor you believe the injury to be. Three, wrap the victim in a blanket, towel, or whatever is available to minimize heat loss. A fun trip to the seashore is a popular summertime activity. But remember, no matter where you are, as you slip into the refreshing waters, you are entering an area less familiar than your immediate surroundings. You may find yourself in the wild. In the wild. Thank you for tuning in to another exciting installment of In the Wild. To hear more captivating stories of real-life survival, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Stay prepared, because you never know when you may find yourself in the wild. <laughs>